are uh, in John chapter 19 this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 16 through to 30 of John's Gospel. We almost come to the end of John's Gospel. We're at the uh, sort of pinnacle of of the Gospel in the sense of where this has all been leading. And so we pick up at verse 16. So He delivered Him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, let us pray for God's blessing upon his word preached. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. These are words that if we have any sense about us, will be uh, truly moved by them. There will be uh, emotions whereby we see what our sin has caused, but also where the love of God is made manifest. And so please bless us with the true and right perspective of what you seek to instruct us in as we hear your word preached for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure that many of you have heard or perhaps even said during the course of your Christian life to someone, maybe you are uh, engaged in Christian counseling and you have said to the individual, uh, don't worry, 
God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And uh, I sometimes wonder if those people who say that have ever had children, but uh, I think it's probably one of the most unbiblical things you could say. Uh, for the very simple reason that if God never gave us more than we could handle, we would all be practical atheists because we wouldn't need God. In fact, the whole point of God in the way He relates to us as a father to our children is to give us more than we can handle so that we don't try to handle life ourselves. Sometimes, God gives us more than we can handle in ways whereby we can say that there is no hope in sight. In fact, imagine saying to Jesus as He is uh, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat like drops of blood or falling from his forehead and one of the disciples comes up and says, Now, now, Lord, the, the good Lord will not give you more than you can handle. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, knew that he would end up dying. Uh, the point is, and it's a very important one, and it will help us to understand, I think, the overall point that I'm going to try and make in this sermon, is that sometimes we have to confront realities whereby there appears to be no hope in sight. And what do we do when that is the case? Now, we also find as we look at John's Gospel and the way in which he is unfolding these events in such a methodical, careful way, that there is the appearance versus the reality. And that is another point I want us to take from this. Not only how do we deal with more than we can handle, but how do we deal with looking at the world in which the appearance and the reality don't match up. So, for example, uh, those of you who are historians and old enough to remember the Nixon versus Kennedy uh, debate, very well-known debate in the United States, and uh, it was interesting that if you were to watch the debate on TV, looking at the people, you would say Kennedy was the winner. That was most people said Kennedy won the debate because Kennedy looked better, had that sort of appeal that was uh, something Americans enjoyed, and uh, they thought, now those who were listening on the radio who didn't get to see thought that Nixon won the debate. And uh, that was very interesting when you look at the actual reality versus appearance. If you look at criminals brought into courthouses and how Nicely, they are cleaned up and they are in a suit and uh, they have their hair done a certain way and uh, they give the appearance that they are fine, upstanding human beings when in actual fact, many of them are criminals who have done horrible things. You had it this past week in Canadian Parliament. The appearance versus the reality. Standing ovation for a war hero. Yes, the unfortunate reality is that the war hero wasn't in fact a war hero, but fought on the side of the Nazis, which was a, a small fact that had somehow uh, slipped the observations of those in charge. And the Speaker of the House had to step down, and we uh, need to deal with the Russian disinformation that is going on, um, which I still yet to figure out how they were uh, responsible for that. But you know, the Russians... Uh, what is the appearance? The appearance and what is the reality? They don't always match up in many spheres of life. The Pharisees, the appearance versus what Jesus was able to see regarding the reality. 
So keep that in mind as you look at how John speaks of the crucifixion. Notice that he begins in very, I would say, restrained language concerning the gruesome physical horror of the crucifixion. I don't think it is entirely inappropriate to speak about the horrors of what actually went on. John didn't need to go into details about the physical, gruesome reality of the crucifixion. Why? Because they all knew his readers at the time. When you see that Jesus is delivered over to them to be crucified, the readers understood full well the horrific nature of the public execution done by the Romans whereby somebody was put on a cross, nails were put into their feet, into their wrists or their hands, they were often uh, beaten to the point their legs were broken so that they could not keep themselves up, which was actually an act of mercy so that the death could happen quicker, but they would die by asphyxiation because they would have to try and keep themselves up in order to breathe, and when they lacked the strength to be able to keep themselves in a certain posture to be able to breathe, they would end up giving way to death, and all sorts of other horrible things would take place. John doesn't really dwell on those things, though we should at least be sensitive to the fact that the readers would have understood that it was a gruesome physical and emotional horror that took place that acted in part to warn those onlooking not to do the things that these criminals were responsible for lest they find themselves in the same situation. So, He, that is Pilate, delivered Him, that is Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And this is the culmination of actually a rich biblical theological picture that's been developing since the time of Genesis. Now, some theologians actually believe that it is possible that the place where Jesus was crucified is also the place where God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the place, the place called Mount Moriah, which is in Jerusalem, and there sacrifice your son. And so upon the Mount Moriah, where Isaac would have been sacrificed by Abraham until the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, intervened. That may likely be the place where Christ has gone to the Mount, the uh, place of the skull, the hill, Golgotha. Whatever the case is, we should also be sensitive to the fact that in the beginning, when God made His first promise to sinful fallen humanity, He spoke of a death blow to the head of of the serpent in Genesis 3:15 the first gospel promise he shall bruise or he shall crush your head and you shall bruise or crush his heel the serpent will deal a blow to the seed of the woman Christ but it will only be a blow such as one to the heel yes it will be a death but he will be raised from the dead so it is a death blow to the heel whereas the blow to the serpent is a blow to the head And then you find other places in Scripture where this sort of narrative unfolds. You probably, in the last few months, have been reading through the book of Judges to your children at bed, 
time and thought, well, we'll uh, close tonight with uh, Jael and Sisera. This will be a nice bedtime story for little Johnny. Uh, and little Johnny's saying, oh, mommy, can I have a nice story? And you say, absolutely, little Johnny. We're going to talk about Jael and Sisera. Oh, I love that story. Is that the one where she drives the tent peg through his head? Yes, that's the one. But there's actually something interesting going on there. Jael, who is part of the seed of the woman, strikes a death blow to the seed of the serpent through the skull. It's deeply and richly symbolic of the death blow that will take place by Christ to the seed of the serpent. And then you have David and Goliath. Again, where's the death blow? To the skull of Goliath. And so you get to this point in biblical history here in verse 17, and Jesus goes to the place of the skull. And that only makes sense that there would be a death blow to the serpent at a place called Golgotha. So what is the appearance? The appearance is Christ is a criminal. He is the one who is going to be killed. What is the reality? The reality is far from being a criminal, He is the sinless Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. The appearance is the devil and the Jewish religious leaders have won. The reality is, Christ has now crushed the head of the serpent by defeating Him through His death on the cross. Now, this kingship theme unfolds in verse 19-22. to Pilate writes an inscription and he puts Jesus of Nazareth. He identifies who He is because there were many Jesuses Uh, During that time, just simply the name, Jesus was quite common, like Mary was quite common. You can imagine in school, uh, is Mary here today? And like uh, 50 hands go up and is Jesus here today? And a lot of hands would go up. That's just how it was back then. So you had to identify someone. And Jesus was identified by the very fact that he came from Nazareth. Remember, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus was of Nazareth. And here is his crime. He is the king of the Jews. Now the Jews obviously upset at this because they don't really believe he is their king. They don't believe he's the Messiah. So they wanted to read, he claims to be the king of the Jews. He's not really our king. In fact, we've handed him over to you because he's claiming to be a king in opposition to Caesar. But Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And you can sense that he definitely wants to get back at these people people who he feels have entrapped him by their shenanigans. So, Pilate has written that. Now, interestingly, a lot of Psalm 22 is unfolding as we read John 19. And in Psalm 22, for all of the uh, details and imagery that you will find that speak of Christ and His death and humiliation, you also have in verse 28... For dominion belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. So when Christ is quoting Psalm 22 as He does, and when elements of Psalm 22 are being fulfilled in Christ's death, which they do, we also must keep in mind that Christ was deeply conscious of the fact that the Lord would rule over the nations. So when you see King of the Jews here, here is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. 
What is the appearance? The appearance is you have a pathetic king. You have a sign above his head as he is bleeding, as he is being mocked, as he's being ridiculed, as he's hanging there in shame, cursed as anyone who is, who is hung upon a tree. What is the appearance? Here's a defeated king. Here's a miserable king. Here's a weak king. What's the actual reality that Christ is reigning over the world from the cross? That He is in complete control of heaven and earth. That even as He is apparently a helpless victim, He is upholding all things by the power of His Word at that point in time. That's the reality. Now more fulfillments take place because the soldiers, when they crucify Jesus, verse 23, they take His garments and divide them into four parts. Here they're acting as responsible human beings with free wills that are allowing them to do things. One part for each soldier and also his tunic. However, the tunic was seamless and so it becomes sort of worthless if you were to cut it up into four pieces. You know, you, you win a car and uh, I win a nice McLaren because I uh, have a gambling problem, but I, I actually win this time. And I go back home feeling guilty and say to my boys, well, you three boys, I know you like McLarens. Uh, Matthew, you get the first third, which I'll chop up. Josh, you get the second third, which I'll chop up. And Thomas, you get the final third. And they say, no, no, that doesn't make any sense. The point is this tunic was quite valuable. And so to cut it up means it would lose its value. So, what do they decide on? They decide to cast lots. Notice verse 24. So they said to another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, Psalm 22, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22 was written especially for Christ on the cross. Now, what is the appearance? The appearance is that these soldiers are taking, which was custom, the clothing of the individual being crucified, and they are casting lots, which is a sort of random um, fortune that takes place. Who will win? But what is the reality? The reality is in what appears to be random events taking place where somebody gets lucky, they are actually fulfilling the Scriptures. That where human beings think that they are simply acting in accordance with their purposes, the purposes of God are being fulfilled. Now something else is quite striking in verse 25-27, to 27, because by the cross of Jesus were His mother, Mary, his mother's sister, Mary, distinguished by being the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Every disciple except one appears to have abandoned Christ, but the three Marys are there, and I believe John was there. John likely would have been the youngest and maybe would have been less likely to have been uh, caught up in all the maelstrom of the activity that was taking place. And so, John is there. And Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. This is John's way of saying who he is without saying who he is. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And you may wonder what is terribly theologically significant in a section where there is so much theology of significance. Why would he draw attention to this fact? And there are a number of plausible explanations for this. The first thing we have to understand is that he definitely identifies who is to be the mother and who is to be the son. Actually, in the providence of God, my mother-in-law came to church today. She's visiting and she was there and I wanted to say to my mother-in-law, behold your son. I'll never forget the first time I saw my mother-in-law. I was at Barb's house at the top of the stairs and she opened the door and there'd been this big sort of anticipation that Barb has finally found some guy she really likes. Uh, That was the rumor. And uh, I'll never forget the door opening and she looked up the stairs. And if I'd known at that point that I actually would become her son, I would have loved to have said, behold your son. But uh, that probably would have killed her. I still don't know what I'm preaching on at some wedding on Saturday. I forget who's getting married, but I do want to say, behold your husband. Behold your wife. Uh, that'd be a good one, Henry. Yeah. Assuming the marriage goes through and everything, still a few days to rethink things. <laughs> kind of nervous. Awful thing to say. What's going on here where he says, Behold your mother, behold your son? There's a sense in which I think what you find here is something truly remarkable that even when Christ is suffering, even when Christ is in pain, do you know how hard it is to care about others when you are in pain? How many men here when you get a cold sort of retreat into just misery and you can't do anything and you're like, oh, women are not like that actually. Women can be sick and still be very useful to humanity. Men, not so much. It's true. I had a minor cold this week. All bets were off. I only did what I absolutely had to do. But my wife, when she's sick, and my mother-in-law, bless her heart, when she's sick, still manages to putter around and do things for humanity. Christ is actually in the midst of despair, physical and mental agony. And yet, His whole life is almost encapsulated at this point where you could excuse him for being self-focused and yet he is still concerned about his mother. He is still concerned to honor his mother. And I think that detail is important because it highlights something about the nature of who Jesus is. He came to serve. He came to give his life. And as he's even laying down his life, he is still showing honor to his mother. Now, after this, after he has taken care of his last responsibility in a certain sense, and it is sad, is it not, how pitiful some parents are treated in their old age by their children? I didn't say this in my first sermon, but it has struck me. Could you please not be the type of people that bring shame and dishonor upon your parents by neglecting them in their old age? We have an absolute responsibility and duty to our parents to show them honor in their old age by caring for them 
as best as we are able, given the circumstances we find ourselves in. And it is always a very sad thing going to old age homes or finding children who don't care for their parents, don't visit their parents, and don't apparently love their parents. That should never be the case with Christians. Even parents that don't maybe have a claim upon being great parents. We should be showing love to them regardless. You may need to go to your parents even today and say you have not honored them or cared for them in their old age. Christ could not be guilty of that. So after this, after obeying and honoring his mother, knowing that all was now finished, said, and John uses this more and more as the passion gets closer and closer from chapter 13 onwards, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now, he takes uh, a sponge. It's not the same as the other drink that was offered to him, which was a sort of narcotic that would have dulled the pain. This is a sponge that basically enables him to be able to speak. And so he utters in the Greek, it's one word, but he utters these two words here, I thirst. Now, before we move on, you need to see how deeply theological this phrase is. If you read the Gospel of John, it really should strike you. Why? Why should you be struck by the words, I thirst, coming from the lips of our Lord, if you've read the Gospel of John? That's a question. And the answer is quite easy when you think about it. Remember, he meets the woman at the well, and he asks for a drink. But then says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that speaks to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The one on the cross says, I thirst, is also the one who says, I would give to you living water. In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I thirst, and yet whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is what? Thirsty, let him come to me, the one who will thirst and drink. You see, you're meant to be shocked by the apparent discrepancy of the one who is offering to sinners Water, abundant streams of living water who is able to cure your thirst. And yet the one who says, I can cure your thirst is the one who is also saying, I thirst. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Psalm 22, verse 15. I thirst, and yet I can fulfill your deepest need to have your thirst quenched. You remember what may be a parable, we're not quite sure, but in Luke chapter 16, verse 24, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man goes to hell. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to do what? To dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
You can imagine Christ speaking of this reality in Luke chapter 16, knowing that He Himself would undergo the anguish of what that rich man in hell would undergo. Just send someone to dip their hand in water so that I may have something on my tongue. I thirst. What is Christ doing? Christ is showing that the curse that we were meant to undergo, He is undergoing Himself. And yet, as He says, I thirst, He is actually providing streams of living water to all who would believe in Him. It's truly remarkable, the theology of what John is doing here. So what is the appearance? The appearance is, here is a man who thirsts. But the reality is that the man who thirsts is now filling all of us with streams of living water. If you keep on reading, you'll notice he says, it is finished. And again, his life of humiliation is finished. His work on earth is finished. But what is finished is the price has been paid that Abraham and Moses and Jael and all of those who are in glory can, in a certain sense, breathe a huge sigh of relief because the price that had to be paid to guarantee their heavenly existence has now been paid. It's not really as though they had any anxiety in heaven, but there's a sense in which when Jesus says it is finished, there is no going back. The price has been paid. You can go to God and say it is finished. The price has been paid. If you go and look at Parliament and you see that Nazi, actual Nazi, not the ones that get called that, but the actual Nazi, and you see the way in which he's so thankful and he's so happy in the standing ovation, you can actually see his face and he's like so happy. He's overcome with emotion because he's being honored. And you think about a Christian going to God saying, I am claiming the words of Christ on the cross. It is finished. And you don't have parliament, but you have got all of heaven, including the angels, including the departed saints, and they are the ones rejoicing over your it is finished. That's the reality for Christians. It is finished means that there is no price for you to pay. There is nothing that you owe. It is finished. There is nothing you need to bring in your hands to God. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. What is the appearance? The appearance is that Christ's life at this point has been taken from Him. But the reality is He is the one who has laid down His life of His own accord. Nobody takes my life from me, He says in John chapter 10. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it up again. There's one other appearance and reality I think we should be conscious of. The Jewish leaders at this point probably thought they had gotten rid of their problem as he gave up his spirit. Job well done. No longer a problem for us. The reality, never had Christ become a bigger problem for them than when He had defeated sin and death on the cross and has now become Lord of all. That's the reality. 
They thought they had solved their problem, but now they have a Lord standing over them who is commanding them to repent or they will perish. Now the time is gone and I'm conscious of that, but I do want to close with one point. Coming back to the beginning of one issue I brought up. Maybe you've said this before. Maybe you still will say it. But I want you to be conscious of the fact that you might actually be saying something that's not true. And I don't doubt that people mean well by this. But have you ever said to somebody, don't worry, it's going to be okay? Or if someone said, don't worry, it's going to be okay. But then you actually realize that the unfolding nature of God's providence, it's not really going to be okay anytime soon. How do you deal with that? Do you just tell people it's going to be okay and think that they're all of a sudden magically going to be fine about a situation? What if things aren't actually going to be okay? Have you ever thought about that? That life doesn't actually unfold maybe the way we'd like it to and that you see yourself going through a trial and you think you're going to get out of it but then something else happens and it gets worse, not better. And someone said it's going to be okay and then you wake up the next day or the next week or the next month and guess what? It actually isn't okay. And you want to phone them up and kill them because you said you said it was going to be okay but it's not okay. Jesus is in the garden. Jesus is carrying His cross. Jesus is on trial. Jesus is being mocked and ridiculed. And someone says, don't worry. It's going to be okay. And He dies. How are you going to deal with life when things actually aren't going to be okay? I could say to you, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. You phone me up and say, I've got some horrible terminal disease and I say, it's going to be okay. No, it isn't. You're going to die. Have you ever thought about that? You are going to die from this disease unless a miracle happens. And you can't say it's going to be okay. What can you say? You can say our Lord Jesus Christ is never not in control of every situation. And He underwent the trauma Himself. He underwent the physical agony Himself. He underwent the emotional agony Himself. And guess what? He wasn't able to come down off the cross and relieve Himself of the suffering. He wasn't even able to carry His own cross at one point. He wasn't able to rid Himself. And if there was one person who could have rid Himself from the agony He underwent, it was Him who could have called 12 legions of angels to make it okay. But it wasn't okay for Him. He actually went through the suffering to the point of death. What's going to be okay is knowing that your Savior understands that reality Himself, that He is with you, that He underwent it and is able to sustain you when you are given more than you can handle so that He can be with you. And maybe He will be with you to the point of death. And in the world's eyes, that's not okay. But for Christians, it is okay to know that our Savior is not somebody who has no idea what it's like to go through a situation where everything will not be okay, yet He will still be with you and He is the one who has conquered your bigger problem than any disease or any frowning providence. He has conquered the reality of your sin once and for all. He has paid the price so that ultimately 
one day, maybe not in this life, but one day it will be okay because you will be raised from the dead. All because He said, it is finished. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank You for Your Word and thank You for how we are confronted with our Savior who did not escape what was a gruesome and horrific end to His life. And yet, we are also thankful for the reality that never once was our God and our Savior not in control. And so as we go through our own crosses, and as those crosses seem to extend and extend and extend, we thank you that our Savior is not a bystander who knows nothing of the realities of real suffering, but actually knows it better than each and every one of us can ever possibly understand. And so we will be okay because Christ will be with us We pray that this may be our hope in a world of many pains and sorrows. For Jesus' sake, amen.